coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. Schedule one requirements create these obligations that then are implemented by state parties to the treaty in their domestic drug control regimes. And what that does is it adds a significant layer of cost and complexity to doing research with these drugs and delays it. In other cases, you may have researchers who are minded to pursue research, but given the the cost and the complexity and the administrative requirements, decide that it's just not worth the time and the hassle to pursue the research, or they can't get ethical approvals, or they can't get the funding. And so it really becomes a drag on advancing research. And of course, you know, when you slow down the advancing of research, you slow down ultimately the development of therapies for patients. And so really what we're focused on is trying to get the scheduling changed internationally in order to give governments the legal flexibility and the scientific cover to change their domestic regimes in a way that can accelerate this project of ultimately getting treatments to patients who are in need. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture, designed for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts, presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. I am your host, Eamon Armstrong. Psilocybin is quickly becoming recognized as an effective modality for treating depression, anxiety, and other mental health challenges. Yet the road to decriminalization and legalization of the medicine in the U.S. and on a global scale is still slow going. Join us today with Chris Cotterman of the International Therapeutic Psilocybin Initiative, or ITPRI, to discuss psilocybin rescheduling on a global scale. We begin with Chris's introduction to psychedelics. He shares his motivation to work pro bono to get psilocybin legislation passed. We discuss the Convention of Psychotropic Substances in 1971 and what decriminalization actually means. We close with a deep dive on this current psilocybin initiative, what it means to regulate psilocybin, psilocybin availability, and how you can get involved in moving rescheduling forward on a global level. Chris Cotterman is the co-founder and chair of the board of directors of the International Therapeutic Psilocybin Initiative, which brings together an international coalition of leading psychedelic therapy advocacy and research organizations to promote and secure a rescheduling of psilocybin under the 1971 UN Convention of Psychotropic Substances. So now, here is Chris Cotterman. Chris, welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. I'm honored to have you on the show today, and I have already learned so much preparing for this that I can't imagine how deep we will get today and how elucidating it will be for our listeners. So, Chris, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we are going to talk today about an initiative that you are the chair and co-founder of. It's called the ITPRI which stands for the International Therapeutic Psilocybin Rescheduling Initiative. What will we be calling it for the rest of the conversation? We can call it ITPRI. ITPRI. Okay, ITPRI. And 
we are looking at a global rescheduling initiative for psilocybin. This is a big deal because it affects countries all around the world. We'll get into all of it today. Let's just start with your relationship to psychedelic medicine. When did you first get interested in psychedelics as a way of understanding human consciousness? You know, I, I, I first came across the topic when I was in my teens. I read about the studies that Ken Kesey had participated in, the CIA studies in the 1960s as a result of having, having read Tom Wolfe's Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, a book that had a huge impact on me. So, you know, I was aware of some of the early research, both on the CIA side and then as a result of sort of doing some of my own research, the, you know, in terms of the potential therapeutic applications of it. And then my, my interest in my 20s was a recreational one where, you know, I think like many people in the space, I had experiences with a, a number of these drugs and, you know, remarkable experiences. I think all of them, except for one, were very positive experiences and ones that are still sort of burned into my memory these many years later in terms of just being really powerful experiences. Obviously different than the therapeutic experience where, you know, one is looking inward. These were, you know, out in the woods with friends or at parties or, you know, in different social settings. But nonetheless, these are powerful drugs in any setting. Uh, so, you know, that was sort of my introduction to psychedelics originally. And then, like many people, I think I started seeing coverage in the news and elsewhere a number of years ago about the research that was happening at Hopkins and in Imperial and elsewhere. And of course, read Michael Pollan's book. And, and I think given my prior experiences, both with the drugs and the reading I had done in my teens, I was primed to, to take an interest in what was happening. It was like, holy shit, like this stuff is, this is happening again. And, and they're making actual real progress that could have a huge impact on public health. It was exciting. It's really a thrilling time, especially if we're talking about the global stage because of the enormous therapeutic value of all of these molecules, particularly in this case, psilocybin. Something that's interesting to me is people's willingness to speak about psychedelic experience. Some aren't, some are. We're talking about the UN level legal proceedings. You seem to feel very comfortable referencing your own psychedelic experience. I myself speak about my psychedelic experience often, but I'm a podcaster, so <laughs> there's not a lot of people who sure. are going to be upset with me about that. Do you feel that being out of the psychedelic closet, so to say, is helpful in your work? Do you think it makes it more difficult to speak to certain government agencies? Is there any challenge there? Or are we in a place now culturally that we're just kind of open about the fact that we've had these experiences in our lives? These are uh, experiences from my 20s. You know, these are decades ago now. I think lots of people in interesting positions, even within decision-making positions with institutions, have had experiences when they were young. And I don't think it's shocking to anybody. I don't think it, it characterizes anybody for who they are or what they are. We, we all have interesting pasts. And, uh, you know, we're constantly changing, right? Uh, who we are one day is not who we are the next for positive or negative. And I, I, don't, I don't see it as being a problem. I, I mean, it's not something that uh, I necessarily intend to put front and center when I'm lobbying governments because, you know, I just don't think it's relevant to the subject matter in terms of the focus of the, the arguments that we'll be advancing. Um, but I also, I also don't think it's a problem and I'm, I'm not ashamed of these experiences and I don't, you know, I don't see any need to hide them. I have to figure out how to 
talk to my kids about them if they ever listen to this podcast, but that's a different story. Well, <laughs> the world is changing very quickly, so that conversation yeah. will also evolve. So on the, I, I think that when we think about moving legislation, don't, I don't even know if you call it legislation on the UN level, but when we're talking about global rescheduling, we need people to lead that effort who have some pretty powerful chops in terms of like their legal background, the other work that they've done. And that's part of why this, this thing about being out of the psychedelic closet is interesting to me and why I brought it up. Because I often think that we have a lot of people who've been pro-psychedelic for a long time, but they're not necessarily always, although in some cases they are, people who have the kind of leverage or the kind of experience to like move a global body. So let's talk a little bit about your experience and what has put you in a position to be able to be leading an initiative for global reschedulization of a substance. So I know that you were trained as a lawyer and I know that you've worked in the corporate sector for a long time. Can you t- just briefly outline for our audience today what has brought you to this point where you're even in a position to build a coalition to actually make changes for global policy? Yeah, so um, I am trained as a lawyer and, and licensed as a lawyer still in New York. I decided not to uh, spend my law my life in a law firm and uh, spent the early part of my career working in politics in Canada uh, as an advisor to federal and provincial cabinet ministers for different liberal governments and working on political campaigns and then uh, leveraged that experience for the next stage of my career in the corporate sector, uh, where I worked in government affairs, policy, and communications. And through that work, you know, you gain experience in terms of learning how to run integrated government affairs and communications campaigns that are designed to impact the decisions of policymakers, either regarding regulatory changes that are being proposed or regulatory changes that are being sought. And so, you know, this is a skill set that I developed over my my years in the corporate sector, including with an international focus and some work related to the WHO, and then which I now use to make a living. You know, this is not it pre is not what I do full time as a job. This is unpaid work. You know, I make my living running a, a public affairs business. And so through that business, I'm, you know, providing support to my clients to enable them to be more effective in terms of their government affairs and communications efforts. And so that's sort of the skill set that I bring to the table in terms of being able to run effectively what is a campaign to change the scheduling of psilocybin under the 71 convention. So the last question before we get into that 71 convention, because I want to get a bit into the history. I want to know a bit about your why. You just mentioned that this is unpaid work, and it's a lot of work. And it's not just work like having nice conversations on podcasts. I mean, it's a lot of technical work and building coalitions and fundraising and that sort of thing. So this is unpaid work. You're, you're just doing this. Why? why? Why does this matter to you? You know, I think it's a massive public health opportunity. The, the impact that this can have if we can successfully move these drugs from research to approved therapies is is potentially staggering right and you know when you look at the populations of patients who are involved you know these people have really had very few good options over the last number of decades and i think i have some sympathy to, to that as a result of the fact that my maternal grandmother, who I never met, um, suffered from significant challenges in terms of her mental health, which eventually cost her her life. And, and my mother lost her mom at a very early age. And so, 
you know, one gets to appreciate the impact that has not just on the individual, my, my grandmother in this case, but also on, on my mother and how her life went and turned out. And I think there's a, there's a, a chance here to do something in an area where I have a skill set to help move the ball forward in a way that can benefit, you know, literally millions of people. And what a great thing to be able to take, tell your grandkids about in terms of the things you've done at the end of your life, as opposed to just having worked and made money. And, you know, I, I think it's exciting. This stuff also fascinates me, right? I just get excited about it. I think it's, I think it's, these are really interesting processes and really interesting issues and they're easy to get excited about. So, you know, I think it's a combination of all those things. I've also just been interested you know, previously in, in other big public health opportunities where, you know, some innovation or technology or advancement comes along that, that really can potentially be a game changer. Let's jump into psychedelic prohibition. I'm a history guy, and when I was preparing for this conversation and reading some of the materials that I was sent, I just... I think it's so interesting the way that the world becomes as it is because we, we come into the world and we think that it just is that way. Drugs are bad and therefore they are illegal and that's the world we're in. And then we try these substances that are drugs that are bad and they actually help us grow and heal. And so there's something wrong with the narrative that drugs are bad and they should be illegal. Or they're bad because they're illegal, uh, which is what I hear from my children all the time. Oh, something's illegal, so it must be bad. Well, and the way that that kind of like creates culture, and of course the, the casualties of the drug war are casualties because of the war, not because of the drugs. And I think that's borne out to be absolutely true. But I'd love to know the history because I like to know how we got here, because how we got here is part of how we unwind it. And so I wanted to talk about the 1971 UN Convention on Psychoactive Substances and maybe a little bit about briefly how we got to that point. I know that the US had a huge role in global prohibition, but I'm curious about if you can tell us a little bit about how we got to this place that you yourself are now trying to walk us back from. Sure. In terms of international drug control, it all started with the single convention in 1961, the single convention on narcotic substances. And the single convention was drafted and adopted in such a way that it really had a very narrow focus, which was drugs with coca, cannabis, or opiate-like effect. And so very narrow set of drugs that could be controlled internationally under the single convention. And then, of course, you have the emergence of and the, the growth and popularity of various psychedelics during the 1960s. We all know the story with Timothy Leary and, and what happened with the 1960s culture. And simultaneously, there was also uh, concerns in the U.S. and in, in elsewhere about the increasing popularity of amphetamines. And so given the fears of Nixon and other sort of early proponents of the war on drugs, there was a effort internationally to determine, you know, how do we deal with these substances from a perspective of international control? Because we can't, we can't schedule them under the 1961 convention. It, it simply doesn't allow for it. And so there were extensive discussions that went on as in various UN bodies in, in the WHO and the UN Economic and Social Council, etc., looking at what is the threat to public health from these drugs and what do we do about it from an international control perspective. And interestingly, I was just reading um, some of the, the 
documents from this time. And much of the focus was, was really on LSD, not surprisingly. But in many of the documents, there is a acknowledgement about their potential therapeutic benefits of LSD. But they really um, were unclear at the time. They came to the conclusion that the evidence was not substantiated in terms of the public benefit. And simultaneously, they view these drugs as a massive threat to public health in terms of abuse liability and dependence and uh, social consequences. And so that uh, gave rise to the negotiation of the 1971 Convention on Psychotropic Substances, where they could capture in uh, schedule for international control all those drugs that they couldn't fit into the 1961 convention. Whenever I hear about this, I always just think of the two enemies of the Nixon administration were like black folks and hippies. And so how can we criminalize whatever they're interested in? It just always makes me feel angry at Nixon. I mean, the, the history of the war on drugs in the U.S., which we don't need to get into, is, is shameful in terms of the racial factors and, and class considerations and, and other motivations that were driving much of it. Absolutely. And, you know, the U.S. carries a big stick internationally. So when the U.S. wants to raise an issue in terms of international cooperation, they have a lot of influence. And that drove much of, of the, the impetus for the negotiation of the 71 Convention. And the 71 Convention is where we get scheduling of drugs, correct? You get scheduling under both conventions. Uh, the scheduling works slightly differently. But yes, essentially what happens is you know, they decide that a drug should be scheduled for international control, and it's put in, in the 71 Convention, it's put in one of four schedules, right? So originally, they just threw drugs into the schedules without doing any medical or scientific assessment often. They didn't have many of the tools that were available today. Now, when drugs are considered for international scheduling, drugs that are new or drugs that have become a concern for some reason, there is a you know, fairly rigorous process that guides how a decision is made, whether a drug should be scheduled, and if it should be scheduled, how it should be scheduled. And that process is the same for determining whether a drug should be rescheduled from you know, where it currently sits to another schedule under the regime. And within the, the four schedules, Schedule 1 is extremely prohibitive, and then the other three schedules are almost in like a different category. Is that right? A absolutely. What are the restrictions for Schedule 1? And now we're going to get into a little bit of why we want psilocybin not in Schedule 1. What are the restrictions, and how do they relate specifically to psychedelic research that can lead to healing? Yeah, sure. So, so Schedule 1 drugs are, are, are subject to um, special provisions under what's known as Article 7 uh, of the Convention. And essentially, it prohibits all but very limited scientific and medical use. Okay? And then further, with respect to that limited scientific and medical use, it uh, obliges state parties to the treaty, so governments who have signed it or, and or ratified the treaty, to put in place certain controls on those drugs. And so that requires that any uh, research be conducted by a lab that's under the control of the government or licensed by the government. So it's very expensive to get licenses. You have to get a license every time you want to do new research. There's safety and security requirements in terms of how the drugs are stored and managed and weighed. There are various auditing requirements. I won't get into this in a lot of detail, but there are basically the Schedule One requirements create these obligations that then 
are implemented by state parties to the treaty in their domestic drug control regimes. And what that does is it adds a significant layer of cost and complexity to doing research with these drugs and delays it or in some cases results in research simply not happening. So for example, you know, I recently spoke to somebody who'd been talking to a research in Argentina. He wants to do research on psilocybin. Given the way the 71 convention has been reflected in domestic Argentinian law, he can't even import psilocybin into the country to do his research. So it won't happen. In other cases, you may have researchers who are minded to pursue research, but given the, the cost and the complexity and the administrative requirements, decide that it's just not worth the time and the hassle to pursue the research or they can't get ethical approvals, or they can't get the funding. And so it really becomes a drag on advancing research. And of course, you know, when you slow down the advancing of research, you slow down ultimately the development of therapies for patients. And you know, David Nutt has written about this extensively in terms of the impacts of, of Schedule 1 on preventing neuroscience research and, and the development of therapies. And so what really what we're focused on is trying to get the scheduling changed internationally in order to give governments the legal flexibility and the scientific cover to change their domestic regimes in a way that can accelerate this project of ultimately getting treatments to patients who are in need. So I'm still a little bit confused about how global versus domestic policy works. In the U.S., we have local, federal, and then global policies around substances. In the U.S., we have this decrim nature movement where there's a local decriminalization of psychedelics or plant medicines where they're basically saying, we are decriminalizing this in the city of Oakland or the city of Denver or yeah. you know, wherever. That is not decriminalized on the federal level, certainly not rescheduled on the global level. So in terms of the enforcement of international law, it sounds like it's kind of a tricky situation about who enforces it and what it means. How can someone use um, psilocybin in you know, Oakland, California, if it is globally prohibited? Can you explain how that works? Yeah. So the way it works is, is you know, that the governments, the national governments who are parties to the treaty, their obligation is to put in controls domestically. Okay. Now, if they fail to put in those controls or they violate those controls, there's, there's no repercussions in terms of anybody doing anything about it from an enforcement perspective, right? The fact is that national governments don't like to break their international obligations because if you break your international obligation on issue A, then what is to prevent somebody else from breaking their international obligation on issue B, which is important to you? So governments tend to fulfill their international commitments, whether it be under the 1971 convention or under other treaties dealing with other issues. So ultimately, the ability of the city of Oakland or some other jurisdiction in the U.S. to change their local law is really unaffected by the international drug control regime in the sense that there's nobody to really do anything about it. Where it does have an impact is, is on the national level, where, as I said, governments are minded to fulfill their international commitments and take those very seriously in terms of their domestic regulatory regimes. 
you know, in order to give governments the flexibility to change their domestic regimes in a way that doesn't violate their international commitments, we're seeking to change the, the scheduling, which then gives them that flexibility. That does make a lot of sense. And I think really what we're zeroing in on here is around research primarily and the onerous burdens to the research internationally, which isn't really fair to someone you're mentioning someone in Argentina is not able to do research. They don't have the sort of support of something like Imperial College London to be able to jump through these different hurdles from the convention. So your primary focus here is about rescheduling psilocybin for the sake of therapeutic research. Is that accurate? Yeah, to allow governments to bring down those barriers that slow down uh, research and the development of therapies. Correct. Okay, so how are you going to do this? Because the UN is a hugely bureaucratic Byzantine process of different state actors. You know, it seems like it's very difficult to get things to change. What is the process by which someone like yourself can build a coalition that can then reschedule an international prohibited substance? Yeah, so, I mean, I think, first off, we don't have to change the treaty, right? So we're not looking for what would be equivalent to a legislative change domestically where, you know, there's regulations in place and you want the regulations changed or or you want the legislation changed and it requires, you know, the adoption of, of new legislation or new regulations. There's a very clear process set out within the convention and within the WHO as to how one goes about either scheduling a drug or rescheduling a drug. And so there's essentially two steps to the process. The first step in terms of rescheduling is to get a review, right? So a review is conducted, if you can get a review initiated, a review is uh, conducted by the WHO, Expert Committee on Drug Dependence. This is a body of independent experts in drugs and addiction and related topics. And they will do a medical and scientific assessment of the drug in question. And they're going to look at essentially two prime considerations. They're going to look at what's the risk, if any, to public health in terms of abuse liability independence, and what is the therapeutic value of the drug. And scheduling decisions are made based on those two considerations. So they look at pharmacology and toxicology and pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics and all these other factors to come up with an assessment around abuse liability and therapeutic value. And then based on that, they can make a recommendation for a change in scheduling. So the second stage to the process is then where the WHO recommendation goes to what is known as the UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs, the CND. And they are a a decision-making body made up of uh, representatives of governments who then can vote to accept or reject or do something different from what the WHO has recommended. So they can't go out and make their own determination as to abuse liability and therapeutic value. They're stuck with whatever the WHO has given them on on those questions. They can take other things into account in making a decision, but they've become the decision-making body that can change the scheduling. So on the first piece, you know, how does one get uh, the WHO to review a drug for purposes of determining whether the current scheduling is appropriate? Well, essentially, there's, there's three paths that we'll be pursuing. There's a fourth that we won't be pursuing. And, and this is not easily done, but it's also not terribly complicated in the sense that The first path is that any 
government that's a party to the treaty can initiate a review. So the government of Canada or Jamaica or Guatemala, where you are, can say, we think the current scheduling may not be appropriate. We would like a review conducted by the WHO, and that initiates the process, okay? The WHO itself can initiate a review, and the Expert Committee on Drug Dependence, the body that does the reviews, can initiate what's called a pre-review, looking at the same evidence to determine whether a formal review would be appropriate. And the fourth path would be through the UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs requesting that the WHO do a review. We don't think that's really a, a viable pathway. So we're going to focus on the other three. So you have priority target countries that you want to leverage the UN through. And of that list, the U.S. was excluded. And I'm curious why the U.S., where there's so much, there's all these psychedelic companies, everybody's talking about it, MAPS is based in the U.S. Why was the U.S. excluded in your list of target countries to go to the U.N. with? Yeah, I, I just think that given the, the history of the war on drugs and still the very complicated politics in the U.S. around drug policy, the notion that the U.S. is going to stick their hand up and say, you know, we need a review of psilocybin for purposes of potentially rescheduling it is just not a viable pathway. I just think it's not realistic and not worth the time and effort. I think that there are a number of other countries that really make good candidates for initiating a review. And so we want to focus our, our efforts on those where we think we've got the the easiest path to success. So the flip of that question is, do you have one country where you're like, that's my winner? Like, I know, I'm from Canada, I know Canada's going to go all the way, or like the UK, Imperial College London, or maybe it's Guatemala. Who like? Do you have like a number one country that you're really focused on, you think they're going to be the ones to lead this? There's, there's certainly um, a couple countries that I'm most optimistic about. I don't really want to share those, to be honest, uh, because you don't like to tell, you know, governments that guess what, you know, you're, you're our golden ticket. Um, but I do think amongst the the dozen or so countries that we've identified as priorities for engagement, there are clearly some that, based on you know the current government in place and the record of past governments around relevant issues you know, give me more hope than for others. Uh, on the flip side, for example, I would say the UK, despite all that's happening there, and we will be engaging with the UK, it's a difficult one for many reasons. And I'm not as optimistic about the UK as I am about some of the other countries that, that we'll be targeting. It's so interesting looking at psychedelics globally. So there are psilocybin retreats that are popping up in Jamaica and Amsterdam. Obviously, there's there's ayahuasca and other traditional plant medicines in the Amazon. And then even in the U.S., Denver is kind of leading the way for the decriminalization movement. And some of these locations that are on the cutting edge of psychedelics may end up getting a real benefit down the road. So I, I wonder if, say, you're talking to the government of Jamaica and you're like, well, you're already becoming this destination for psilocybin. If you you know, put your head out on this initiative with the UN, then that kind of reinforces the brand of psychedelic tourism, which supports the economy of, of the country. It's been interesting for me to sort of watch this happen. I wonder what kind of storytelling one uses to engage a country in the context of something that's, that's quite avant-garde for many people, but is also going to be extraordinarily profitable and more importantly, extraordinarily helpful for the mental health of the people in those countries. So the idea of engaging with countries globally is super fascinating. Yeah, first of all, I'm happy to talk about the list of countries. I just want to tell you which my number one pick amongst them is, um, so we can get back to that. But 
Yeah, I think economic considerations are, are absolutely valid to governments, right? I mean, governments do things all the time in terms of seeing an opportunity to advance domestic industry and create economic benefits and jobs. And so certainly I believe that that will be part of the discussion with certain governments that we will talk to. And I think that is uh, part of the discussion that's happening with governments in, in a number of places where people are engaged in efforts to make domestic regulatory changes. I'm sure that people are talking to the government of Canada these days around the domestic regulatory situation in Canada are talking about the economic opportunities given the large number of psychedelic companies that have been established in Canada over the last few years and you know, are listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange and are creating economic benefits. And, and Canada, as a result, has an opportunity to take a leadership role with respect to creating a whole new industry, which is in the interest of the government from a tax perspective, and it's the interest of its citizens from a economic benefits generation perspective and the creation of jobs and so on and so forth. So I think these are absolutely valid considerations and, and things that we will be talking to governments about. First and foremost, we'll be focusing on, obviously, the science and evidence around therapeutic potential, the huge benefit that these therapies can bring to underserved populations, and the fact that psilocybin is really not a threat to public health in terms of abuse, liability, and dependence. You know, I'm still just so fascinated how someone in an unpaid role is able to affect global change. And I think part of what's beautiful about this initiative is your partners and stakeholders. So you have you know, Amanda Fielding, Rick Doblin. You're going to bat with some of the biggest names in psychedelics. I'm curious how you actually were able to bring this coalition together. Did you already have connections with some of these organizations? Yeah, I, I had no connections in this space at all when I started this. I didn't really know anybody. So I, I you know, obviously spent a lot of time doing research and started in the inertial stages just sort of started re reaching out to some folks to get a sense of what they thought about this in terms of whether this is worth pursuing and whether it's viable. And without exception, I was just met with huge enthusiasm everywhere. And, you know, these people are more accessible than one might think to begin with. I was able to have a call early on with uh, Amanda and one of her sons and with Rick and his team and uh, with folks in other organizations. And I think in in all cases, they're very much, much focused on uh, where they can add the most value. And Rick and the team at MAPS, obviously, in terms of getting MDMA through FDA approval and uh, Amanda in terms of advancing the research and science in the UK. And so I think for them, they saw an opportunity to uh, support an initiative that would add value internationally, but didn't require them to add an additional layer to the things that they were already doing. And we've been super lucky in terms of getting on board the partners that we have. Obviously, we've mentioned Beckley, we've mentioned MAPS, uh, Mind Medicine Australia is on board as a partner. Nierk AC, uh, which is based in Mexico, I don't know if you're familiar with them, are on board as a partner. The Osman Foundation, uh, the Open Foundation, and David Nutt's organization, Drug Science. And we've also managed to put together a stellar advisory board. So it, you know, it's great to be able to call on these people given the connections they have and the experience and the knowledge and the expertise that, that you know, will benefit our efforts. 
So it seems that we're towards the beginning of this process and that this may be a long road. I know with cannabis, it was something like nine years and that only came together in 2020. And of course, there's some models there to follow. And I know that some of your advisors actually were working with the 2020 UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs rescheduling of cannabis initiative. Any lessons there from the um, rescheduling of cannabis, that long journey that might make this a bit of a more rapid road? Yeah, I, I don't think this is nine years. I mean, cannabis was a bit strange in the sense that, you know, it, it started out with a request from the UN Commissioner on Narcotic Drugs for the WHO to look at cannabis seeds. And it eventually morphed into what uh, became a review and then recommendation for rescheduling of cannabis under both the 61, the single convention and the 71 convention. It strangely sits in both. I think one of the things that made the cannabis process so slow and so lengthy is the fact that despite the progress around cannabis and particularly medicinal cannabis, you know, there still remains a huge international illicit market that is a concern to many governments. And I think that the cannabis process got slow walked both within the WHO as a result of that. And it certainly got slow walked within the second stage at the UN Commission on Narcotic Drugs, where the vote on the WHO recommendation was delayed a number of times. And there was opposition from the Chinese and the Russians and the Chinese and Russian blocs. And so it was a very political and complicated process. I don't think we're looking at nine years. I think that we're looking at a much shorter time frame. I can't give you a, a number on that, but I think given the strong evidence around the benefits to patients that we can move this process forward in a much more expedited manner. And so what are the next steps of that process and how can those listening to this podcast support this initiative? What, what do we need to do to help you move this across the finish line in a not slow walked manner? Sure. If you know any billionaires who'd like to write me a check so we can fund a proper campaign, I, you know, I'd, I'd be happy to take their phone number. We obviously need to raise some money. You know, this is, this is not sustainable, me doing this on a, on a part-time basis. I need to be able to hire an executive director and ideally a, a team behind them that can focus full-time on this. I have a business to run that pays the mortgage and, and you know, pays for the food on the table, and I continue to need to do that. So fundraising for us will be key. And now that I've got the organization in place and, and all the administrative stuff that was required to set this up and getting the coalition partners and the advisory board and, and launching the thing, I'm really starting to now focus on the fundraising. And then obviously, you know, we need to start focusing on the engagement. But fundraising is really the big, is the big need we have right now, to be honest, because uh, these things can't be done for free, right? One has to travel and go meet people and, and produce sophisticated documents that, that are worthy of engagement with governments and, and all these things take time and money and time that I don't have, but I'm hoping that I can buy somewhere. Well, you know, I think that as things seem to be moving so quickly with um, psychedelics, and I'm grateful that they are, the way the FDA has been moving MDMA through phase three, the breakthrough therapy status of psilocybin, it seems like things are moving. And I imagine that getting this momentum now and getting this awareness now, um, people will begin to see how the pieces need to come together for the global initiatives as well. And a piece that's so important to me, like my number one thing about psychedelics, and I feel like I say this on so many podcasts, so if you've listened to many of these episodes, forgive me, it's still the most important thing, equity and access. 
to me, psychedelics need to be available as healing modalities for everyone, for people of different socioeconomic backgrounds and people in different countries. Because if they're so valuable for healing mental health, if they're so valuable for creativity, for expanding our ability to achieve in the world, then they're simply going to widen gaps of inequality if they're not available to everyone. And so what you're doing in pushing for global rescheduling is part of the initiative that's going to affect people in various cultures and countries around the world to have access to these medicines in a good way. And that's the thing that I think is so inspiring. And I'm curious how you feel about the developing versus developed world's access to healing methods. And something like psilocybin, you, you can grow it. it. You can just grow it in your closet. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm really glad you raised this point, uh, given it hasn't come up in our discussion uh, prior to this. I mean, if you look on our website, I think on the, the first, on the home, the landing page, we talk about equity of access. And I think you know, it's one thing for psychedelics to get through the FDA process and be approved for treatment of various indications in the U.S. and then presumably to get through a similar process in Canada and in Europe. But that doesn't necessarily benefit people in low and middle income countries who are also suffering from various mental health conditions and whose governments don't have a lot of resources to provide even the, you know, often ineffective treatments that are available today. And I I do think that that is really one of the foundational sort of motivators in terms of us pursuing this international rescheduling, which is to ensure that this is not an area of progress in science and therapy that only benefits people in high-income countries where there is the the focus on advancing these therapies in terms of their availability. And I, I think it's critical. I think it's critical that, that patient populations in, in, you know, Africa and other low and middle income countries have access to these treatments that, um, not only are, uh, they effective, but, you know, also cost a fraction of what, uh, it would cost to, you know, give people pharmaceutical alternatives to to these treatments. We're talking about very low-cost options that, that really can be game-changers in some of these countries, and, and that's an equity of access question, absolutely. And, and there's an additional piece here which um, is mirrored in this Right to Heal campaign, which is happening in Denver at the moment, which is that in many countries, psychedelic medicine was part of a traditional heritage. I mean, obviously in the Amazon, but in different cultures, we're using different plant medicines, psychedelic or non, to treat certain ailments. And if those substances are criminalized, there's a whole heritage that's criminalized as well. And so it's not just let's create a a pharmaceutical drug that's based on psilocybin that works really well and let's proliferate that around the world, which would be better than many of the alternatives in terms of SSRIs that aren't as effective for that many people. But, you know, there's these traditional medicines and traditional healing modalities. It's sort of like a grassroots global healing. And to get the kind of criminalization out of the way, and I think that this is a first step to that because we're talking about the research that will, you know, we reschedule psilocybin now more research, and eventually we can look at you know global decriminalization, regulated markets, and people having access to their traditional ancestral medicines. And that, to me, is another thing that we in the psychedelic community, proponents of psychedelics, need to talk about too, which is it's not just about cool tech startup psychedelic guys. It's about ancestral medicines yeah. and about people's right to heal. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's different parts of the community that are focused on different issues. I think there are those that are very much focused on the medical model in developing the availability for treatments of patients. And then there are other folks that are very much focused on these cultural questions that you, you raise. And I know that Armando, who is the co-founder of our partner in New York, is very much focused on not just questions of you know, medical benefit, but also some of these uh, questions around the rights of indigenous communities and, and their cultural traditions as well. And, and I think, I think uh, it's a big tent and there's a place for a lot of people doing a lot of different things with, with different focuses, depending on what their passions are or where, where their, their skills and, and experience can be best put to use. Well, Chris, it is a big tent and we are happy to have you in it. Uh, it's great, the work that you're doing. And I just want to honor you for just taking your spare time and making complex legal documents. I can't think of something that would be more challenging for me and I would least like to do in my spare time than create complex <laughs> legal documents. But we all have our part to play and I'm grateful that you are taking this on and it seems like you're getting a lot of validation from the people who want to work on it with you. I've seen energy around this. I saw Amanda post about this recently. So movement is happening and I'm grateful to have this opportunity to learn more and talk to you today on the show. And I want to close in the same way we always close this program, which is many of the people listening are working with psychedelics, would like to work with psychedelics who want to be facilitating healing. We broadly refer to them as psychedelic therapists, although there are many different kinds of healers. Also, a lot of people who are just enthusiastic listen to this show too. But for the people who are in the front lines working with these medicines to support people, I just want to give you a moment from your position of wanting the work you're doing on a global level, just to speak to those folks and what would you like to say to them? I think th those folks have played a, a pivotal role in this renaissance that has happened. And if it wasn't for their efforts, then you know much of this may not have occurred or wouldn't occur in the, the way it is. And I think first and foremost, those individuals are focused on where I think we all really need to be ultimately be focused, which is on the, the patients and the people who can benefit from these therapies. You know, it's easy to get lost in the ins and outs of the UN process and how do you do this and how do you do that. At the end of the day, this is all really ultimately about the patients and the individuals who can benefit from these therapies. And I think that, you know, we need to maintain that focus and it's a great motivator. And obviously, people have, these people have dedicated their lives to serving those communities and uh, hats off to them. I think often in challenging circumstances, they're doing it. We'll soon be announcing uh, an additional partner who's very much focused on the patient aspect of this and advocating for a particular population of patients who are underserved. And uh, my hat's off to the, the great job these people have done in keeping the focus on the patients and the, the people who can benefit from what would be a game changer in terms of public health. Game changer it is. And we are changing the game on all different levels. How can people follow you? How can people stay up to date with information? Are you sending out a newsletter? Or do you have kind of social aspects that people should be following? I know there's a website. Just run us through how we can keep track of this initiative. Sure. Uh, you can find us at reschedulepsilocybin.org. Uh, in terms of our website, with our social media links, we're on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter, trying to focus our energies narrowly and slowly growing our followings there and, and posting content. And of course, if uh, folks are interested 
in getting on our mailing list. You can sign up via the website contact button in or the mailing list button rather, and we'll add you to the database and keep you uh, posted on various developments as we try to advance the ball on, on the rescheduling front. Beautiful. Well, Chris, thanks for coming on the show today. And may this initiative move very quickly so that you can move on to the next big thing and we can heal the world. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I've, I've enjoyed the conversation. I always, I always like talking about this, this subject and enjoy the sunny weather you have where you are. I'm a little bit envious. Well, it's, a, it's actually a little cloudy out right now, but I'm going to go for a run. Such a pleasure, Chris. And, Likewise. And just honoring your work and, and wishing you the best and we'll be tracking what you're doing. Terrific. Nice talking to you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.